Welcome to the NFID podcast, Infectious Ideas. This is Marla Dalton, NFID Executive Director and CEO, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Bill Schaffner. Bill, it's always wonderful to have you. Good to be with you, Marla, as always. As we celebrate the 50th anniversary of NFID this year and reflect on public health accomplishments, we're talking with thought leaders, heroes, and champions of disease prevention, while also building momentum for the future. Our guest today, Dr. Peter J. Hotez, is an internationally recognized physician scientist in neglected tropical diseases and vaccine development. He is Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and a professor at Baylor College of Medicine, where he is also co-director of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development. As both a vaccine scientist and the father of four adult children, including a daughter with autism, he has led national efforts as a passionate champion of vaccines. He frequently testifies before Congress and appears as a guest for national media outlets, always sporting his distinctive bow tie. So Peter, thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to start on a more personal note and ask how you first became interested in a career in vaccine science. I actually wanted to study infectious diseases ever since I was a kid. Like many of my generation, I read Microbe Hunters by Paul DeCruyff, and I had a microscope and used to collect pond water and water by a brook nearby my home, and I was fascinated by it. And then you got interested in tropical diseases, because maybe because of an obsession I also have with maps. And then when I went for my MD and PhD, and I did that deliberately to study parasitic infections. I got very interested in the idea of applying the new science as it was then in in the late 1970s, early 1980s to the study of molecular biology, to the study of parasitic infections, and then saw a path to developing vaccines. So I went to Rockefeller University and Weill Cornell Medical College for their combined MD-PhD program, where I became enamored with the concept of making a human hookworm vaccine. And now, 40 years later, it's looking really good in phase two clinical trial, So, which is about the right time frame for a lot of these vaccines. The point is, that was always the plan. I saw making vaccines as one of the highest expression of science for humanitarian pursuits, and, and I still believe that. And then we also turned our attention to making two low-cost COVID vaccines for low- and middle-income countries. So that was all planned. The I think the unplanned part was back then, 40 years ago, I could not have imagined there'd be this rise in anti-vaccine sentiment and aggression. And that's been fairly demoralizing. But I started getting involved with that with for reasons that we can talk about. And that's also become meaningful for me because now I think of myself as a vaccine scientist, there's two parts to this deal. One is developing new vaccines for poverty-related neglected diseases and coronaviruses, but also standing up to the anti-vaccine lobby because we can make all the vaccines in the world, but if we don't stop the anti-vaccine lobby from what they're doing, then no one's going to use these vaccines in the first place. Peter, in that spirit, taking the long view and also as the NFID is celebrating its 50th anniversary, In addition to the rise of anti-vaccine sentiment, what are some of the most important changes you've seen related to infectious diseases throughout your extensive career? That's a great question, and we could do a whole podcast just on this. But I think one of them is 
obviously the application of genomic sequencing, high throughput genomic sequencing to the study of pathogens and uncovering their full diversity and identifying new entire phyla of infectious agents. I think that's absolutely been game-changing. And then, of course, the advent of new technologies and what was just awarded the Nobel Prize, for instance, from two colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania for mRNA vaccines and now particle vaccines and adenovirus vector vaccines. I think that's such an exciting time. We're in this very curious situation now where the progress in our technology has outpaced our political and social institutions that we have to manage it. And I think that's one of the manifestations of this rise in anti-vaccine sentiments. So, Peter, how did your experience as a father help shape your career? And I guess, did your book, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, have the intended impact that you hoped it would? So here I was developing vaccines. And now I'm here in Texas as part of this extraordinary Texas Medical Center, a, a medical city of 100,000 employees and 60 institutions, including the MD Anderson Cancer Center and where I am at Texas Children's Hospital and Baylor College of Medicine. And that's been very exciting. But the other side to my life that's very important is I'm a parent of four adult kids, including Rachel, who has autism and intellectual disabilities. And one of the original assertions from the anti-vaccine groups were false claims that vaccines cause autism. That began out of a paper that was subsequently retracted that was published in 1998 from out of London that falsely said that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine has the ability to replicate in the gut and cause autism. And it response to that, I, in a very straightforward way, wrote the book, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, which tells the story of Rachel's life, but goes into the detailed evidence showing there's no link to autism. And the anti-vaccine groups keep on switching up what their actual assertion is. First, they said it was the MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine that did it. Then it was bimerosal preservative, then spacing vaccines too close together, then alum in vaccines. And so I detailed the evidence showing there is no link and why the large cohort studies demonstrating that children who get the MMR vaccine are no more likely to acquire autism than kids who don't. And similarly, kids on the autism spectrum are no more likely to have gotten the MMR vaccine than kids not, not on the autism spectrum. And that should debunk it, but they keep on coming up with new assertions. So I detailed that aspect. But the other is it's not enough to just say, don't blame the vaccines. Because parents do want an alternative understanding. And okay, doc, if it's not the vaccines, what is it? And I talk about the role of genetics and epigenetics and the fact that there's been now about 100 autism genes that have been identified, most involved in early fetal brain development. And many actually are neuronal cytoskeleton genes involved in interneuronal connections, a fabulous paper that just came out a couple of weeks ago from Stanford, looking at the role of brain organoids and showing how these neuronal cytoskeleton genes interfere with neuronal migration patterns. And, and that's the basis of autism in a much more coherent explanation. And we did a whole exome genomic sequencing on Rachel and my wife, Anne and I, to identify Rachel's autism gene. And guess what? It's a neuronal cytoskeleton gene, and a newer one that hadn't been reported before involved in a neuronal spectrum. But the point is, we, we have that alternative explanation. And that was important, I think, to really close the door on any link between vaccines and autism. Peter, you're a Renaissance man, and I'm going to go even further afield here, because you served as a U.S. science envoy 
in the Obama administration, you promoted efforts for joint vaccine development between the United States and other countries. Talk to us a little bit about that. How has vaccine diplomacy, I think you coined that term, evolved? Yeah, the full expression of that, of course, were while we were developing parasitic disease vaccines, we also worked on a coronavirus vaccine program because prior to the pandemic, coronavirus vaccines were orphaned just like parasitic disease vaccines were. We started developing vaccines for SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome that you, you remember rose out of southern China in 2002, and then Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome. And that was supported through the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases for a grant that we had with uh, several other institutions in, in New York and Galveston and Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. And then when the COVID-19 sequence hit, we were able to pivot and quickly accelerate a new low-cost COVID vaccine. And the idea behind it was we're then going to transfer the technology with no strings attached, no patents, and minimizing the red tape to vaccine producers in India and Indonesia. So the, the idea behind it is a vaccine diplomacy is true joint cooperation between scientists of different countries to work together to develop these life-saving technologies. And the way I got involved with the Obama administration is interesting. I've been writing about this concept. This is what we were doing in our laboratory. We were actually doing tech transfer of our vaccines to other countries. We were training scientists. And I would speak to people in the State Department and the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy about what Albert Sabin did during the late 1950s, early 1960s, where his oral polio strains were not being fashioned into a vaccine that was widely used until he collaborated with, through back-channel diplomacy between the State Department and, and the USR, jointly with the Soviet counterparts, and it was made into a life-saving vaccine tested on 10 million Soviet school children, shown to be safe and effective, and, and that's what led one part to the licensure of the polio vaccine, two countries putting aside their ideologies to work together. So the Obama administration was very much interested in doing something with countries in the Middle East and in North Africa because of very strained relations, which are still strained today. So he appointed me together with Secretary Kerry. The idea behind it was we would look at how the opportunities that we would have to promote U.S. relations and vaccine development with Muslim-majority countries in, in the Middle East and North Africa with Saudi Arabia, with Tunisia and Morocco. And I really embraced the idea because I thought this could finally be a modern-day expression of what Sabin was trying to do back in the 1950s, 1960s, with some success, uh, particularly with the Saudis on joint vaccine development. So I found that extremely meaningful, and that proved to be very important for COVID-19, not only with our Indian colleagues at Biological E in Hyderabad, but also with the Indonesians. And one of the ironies of our COVID vaccine program was they came into our laboratories and confirmed that all of the source reagents of our vaccines were from non-animal, non-human sources, and in a sense, a vegan or a vegetarian vaccine. And on that basis, worked with their clergy to get it certified as halal, one of the first halal COVID vaccine. I thought that was a great example of a vaccine diplomacy and true international cooperation and interfaith cooperation as well. 
So in addition to being a vaccine diplomat, I love that one of your titles is a science explainer. And I know that you've been critical of the term misinformation, arguing that it doesn't accurately reflect the anti-vaccine movement. I'll ask, what can and should we all be doing now to counter the anti-science rhetoric and help build vaccine confidence? Yes. So I'm going to I'm going to give you I don't the longest I don't know the answer to your question answer I've given <laughs> in, a, in a long time because I'm not sure I really know. But it goes something like this. Since the Rachel book came out, the anti-vaccine movement has unfortunately accelerated and taken on a new political dimension linked very much to political extremism on the far right. And we saw this during the CPAC conference of conservatives in Dallas in 2021 as the Delta wave was unfolding and vaccines were widely available and Americans, especially in, in conservative states, red states, were refusing to take a COVID vaccine because of rhetoric from the CPAC conference that said, first they'll vaccinate you and then they're going to take away your guns and your Bibles. Then it got reinforced by members of the far right, of members of the House Freedom Caucus. Marjorie Taylor Greene would call people like us medical brown shirts comparing vaccines to the Holocaust, which was abhorrent. And Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin started holding vaccine injury roundtables, and Senator Rand Paul was attacking vaccines. And then it had an amplification effect through Fox News, and this was documented by two groups, by Media Matters, a watchdog group, as well as a research group out of a university in Switzerland showing how the evening Fox News anchors every night during that Delta wave falsely discredited the effectiveness and safety of vaccines. And thousands of Americans perished because they believed it. They went down that rabbit hole and refused to take a COVID vaccine, even though the vaccines were widely available. And that's what the new book is about, called The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning, that this is not a theoretical discussion anymore. This has become a killer movement. I estimate 200,000 Americans, including 40,000 Texans, needlessly died because they refused COVID vaccines. And as as you mentioned, it wasn't as misinformation or the infodemic as though it's just some random chunk on the internet. It was organized, it was deliberate, and it was politically motivated. And so the I don't know the answer to your question part comes, what do you do about that? Because now it's a political problem. I think the health sector doesn't really know what to do. And you see that kind of fumbling with the health and human services agencies through no real fault of their own. It's just they feel that they shouldn't talk about politics like I just mentioned and this commitment to political neutrality. So they kind of skirt around the edges and talk about working with the social media company heads or amplifying pro-vaccine messages. And, and of course, we want to do that as well. But it doesn't get to the core of this that there is a nefarious undertaking to deliberately convince the Americans that vaccines are dangerous. And it's had an extraordinary lethal effect of something I could never have imagined. And I think it's not ending. I think we're seeing it manifest now in two different ways. It's starting to widen to all vaccines, and I worry about the impact on childhood immunizations in the U.S. and ultimately globally, but also attacking U.S. scientists. And we're seeing this of the attacking of prominent biomedical scientists as public enemies, and we're even seeing that from two U.S. presidential candidates. So I'm very concerned we've entered a, a dark period in, in American political life right now. You take a global perspective, Peter, and you have mentioned that you and your team 
developed a low-cost COVID-19 vaccine for production in India and Indonesia, this technology transfer. Tell me a little more about that and its implications for the control of vaccine-preventable diseases around the world. Thank you for that. At the Texas Medical Center at Baylor and Texas Children's Hospital, we've created this very unique National School of Tropical Medicine for poverty-related diseases, but also at Texas Children's Hospital, a center for vaccine development, a hybrid between a biotech and an academic research lab that's developing the vaccines that the pharma companies won't make. It's not to demonize the pharma companies. Pharma companies are going to do what they do. But the point is there are certain vaccines that most likely the pharma companies, the big pharma companies aren't going to take on because they're exclusively among the poorest of the poor in low and middle income countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America, diseases such as human hookworm infection and Chagas disease and schistosomiasis and leishmaniasis. So we set this up in the Texas Medical Center. And I say we, there's about 20 plus scientists and it's co-headed by myself and my science partner for the last two decades, Dr. Mary Elena Batazzi, to see if we can create a model for doing that. And we've been very successful at getting parasitic disease vaccines through early to mid-stage clinical trials, all the way from discovery. But now we developed two COVID vaccine technologies based on our earlier coronavirus vaccine program. And so we decided to do this with no patent, minimizing strings attached and licensed it to India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, elsewhere, and really looking at how we can transfer the ownership. So they own it, they work out with their own national regulatory authority, their FDA equivalent, how to do the clinical trials, how to do the data sharing, how to work with the World Health Organization. And it worked incredibly well. And the reason it worked, I think, one of the big reasons, other than loosening patent restrictions and that sort of thing, is we use a technology that's directly compatible with vaccine producers in low- and middle-income countries. Many of them operate together in this wider network that actually calls itself the Developing Country Vaccine Manufacturers Network, dcvmn.org. And a lot of them have their own ability to make recombinant hepatitis B vaccine. So it's one of the most widely produced vaccines all over the world. It's made through microbial fermentation and yeast, genetically engineered yeast. And you then scale it up in a fermenter and a bioreactor. And it's very low cost, very safe technology in terms of what's a safety record for the hepatitis B vaccine. No limit to the amount you can scale. And, and you can do this for 2 $3 a dose. So our thinking from the beginning was, well, if we're going to be in the business, I'll put that in quotations, of trying to make low-cost vaccines for the world, that's a pretty good technology to use as, as your old standby. Not the only one. We also do newer technologies as well, but that's the one we try first because we know we can plug and play pretty quickly. So we had cloned the receptor binding domain of the COVID spike protein, and just like we had shown for SARS and MERS that it was highly protective, we did the same. And worked with Emory University Non-Human Primate Center to show that it was very effective against challenge infections. And then we transferred that to Biological E in India and Biopharma in Indonesia. And as I mentioned with Biopharma, they got it designated as halal, which was pretty exciting. And mm -hmm. uh, the president of the country even took the vaccine publicly. And all in all, about 100 million doses got administered. So I think it's proof of concept that it's possible to broaden the ecosystem that because I think the thinking until then was 
Only the big pharma companies, the multinationals have the chops to do big things. And eventually the crumbs filter down to the low and middle income countries. And we said, no, we think there's a alternative pathway to work directly with vaccine producers in low and middle income countries for new vaccines. And I think we did that. And that was very exciting and, and, and gratifying. And now we're extending this to our entire vaccine portfolio. That's certainly very exciting. Yeah, I think we need to celebrate these small victories for sure. Yeah, one of the hardest part is getting funding for it. What's interesting, when we would go to the NIH for support for this, sometimes they support it, but oftentimes they would say, Peter, it's great what you're doing on a humanitarian basis, but we're not going to fund it because it's, or the study section would say this, because, quote, it's not innovative. And in a way, they're right. There's nothing terribly innovative about a yeast-based recombinant protein vaccine, but it's essential and it's life-saving. And then Operation Warp Speed wasn't interested in us because we weren't a pharma company. So I was worried we were going to fall through the cracks. And fortunately, we got some private philanthropy that really came through for us, the JPB Foundation in New York and a lot of Texas philanthropies, the Clayburg Foundation, the Dunn Foundation, the MD Anderson Foundation, the Tito's Vodka came through with us for $2 million and based in Austin, Texas. Not that I'm endorsing alcohol consumption, but, <laughs> but since if you have a vodka cocktail tonight, you don't want the Russian stuff anyway. So you want to. <laughs> Yeah. You know, we've talked about shots for shots. So there you go. <laughs> that was great. But it was a tough time because if you remember, we were going on the cable news channel, CNN or MSNBC, till oftentimes late in the evening. But at that time, I was getting up at four or five in the morning for Zoom calls because if you work with Asian or African countries, you want to get to them by close of business. That means it's a pretty early start for you. And then raising money at the same time was a very stressful time. And I didn't think I, I think I didn't sleep for three years. Yeah, exactly. I think it's certainly been difficult for all of us, particularly during the COVID pandemic to find that healthy balance between work and home lives. I guess I'd love to hear what you like to do for fun or at least to relieve stress. It's funny. People think because I seem like a nice guy, I'm a nice guy, and, and I can communicate that I must have a really good work-life-family balance. And one of the things that I say is I refuse always to go on work-life balance panels because I don't. I'm a workaholic. I work seven days a week. But I do sleep. I do get my seven, seven, eight hours sleep uh, every night. I, I work a lot, and I have a wife of 35 years who I met as an MD-PhD student in New York, and who, at the time she was working for People Magazine, who puts up with it, as do my four adult kids. So I feel blessed. I don't even consider it work. It's For me, it's been a calling and meaningful, and as does now taking on the anti-vaccine lobby and writing books about that which I also find meaningful, but it's, it's a different type of activity. And unfortunately, it takes you to a pretty dark place because you're going up against some tough cookies. You've got people like Steve Bannon publicly calling me a criminal, and which is really bizarre, or even members of the House Freedom Caucus or Senator Rand Paul targets me. It's a very crazy time right now. Sure is. And we're, I think we're all better off for your efforts. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So before we sign off, but in addition to thanking you so much for taking the time, um, I would also like to give you that same opportunity we give to all of our guests. And that is, what is the myth that you would most like to bust? I think the, the, the 
you ask a vaccine scientist, it's like you bring your car to Midas, right? You're going to get a muffler, no matter whether you whether or not you need one. <laughs> if you bring your car to Midas, you're going to go out, come out with a new muffler. I thought um, you meant so. King Midas, and I was going to get some gold. <laughs> but you're giving us the gold here. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a, a couple of things. One, I'm very concerned with all of the horrible rhetoric around vaccines and falsely discrediting their safety or their effectiveness. Our vaccine works, mRNA vaccines work. They have an extraordinary track record of safety. I think that's one. I think the other is during this time, it's become so clear to me that most Americans really don't have any knowledge about what a physician scientist does on a daily basis and what it means to struggle through lab meetings or get scientific papers either rejected or do major revisions and the work that goes into that, or the work that goes into getting grants funded as versus grants not discussed, and the stress of presenting your findings at lab meetings. And that's the scientific method. And and I think the, the other myth I'd like to dispel is that science is something that's up for debate. If you, you remember, I got a lot of pressure from people like Elon Musk and Joe Rogan to debate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And I said, no, that's not how we do science. You debate 18th century Enlightenment philosophy. I get that. You debate politics. But science is not something typically achieved through debate. It's hard slogging work. And I can't think of too many examples where science was advanced through debate. I think we need to, that just because you're a clever debater means you win the day in, in terms of science. No, that's not how it works. And I think we need to put that out there more. Well, we've been talking today with Dr. Peter Hotez. He was a vaccine developer, vaccine promoter, vaccine defender, and an international vaccine diplomat. Thanks again for joining us, Peter. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Infectious Ideas, a podcast series presented by the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases, where leading experts join us for thought-provoking conversations that lead to infectious ideas. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you'd like more information about NFID, be sure to visit us online at nfid.org. Until next time, 